0: Separate yourself from the rest and take your career to the next level with an online degree from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. Nationally ranked and fully accredited, our programs are student-centered with faculty that infuse practical career experience into their teaching and engage in their disciplines. Set your own schedule with our flexible online platform and access your coursework anywhere. With our selection of affordable online degree programs, promising career opportunities will follow. Explore what's next at St. Mary's University of Minnesota. From St. Mary's University of Minnesota, you're listening to St. Mary's Currents. I'm your host, Ben Rogers. Last month, Duluth-based Essentia Health announced it would close its labor and delivery unit at its Foston Hospital. Faustin is the second Minnesota hospital this month to announce a closure of its delivery ward. That means that pregnant people in Faustin will have to travel unprecedented distances to find an obstetric unit that delivers babies. While this likely came as a shock to the residents in the small northern Minnesota town, it's no surprise to anyone who follows the trends in rural healthcare. Maternal care has been disappearing from rural communities for more than a decade. In 2004, 898 rural counties did not have hospital obstetrics units. By 2018, an additional 200 rural hospitals were without labor and delivery services, according to researchers. According to a recent report from Axios, 45% of rural hospitals in Minnesota no longer offer maternity care. Looking at the statistics nationally, more than half of rural hospitals in the nation no longer offer maternity care. And the concern goes beyond maternal care, with the Minnesota Department of Health reporting in 2022 that rural parts of the state face a severe shortage of health practitioners of all types. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Julie Goderman, Associate Director of the Nurse Anesthesia Program to discuss the crisis facing rural healthcare and what can be done to combat it. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining us on St. Mary's Currents today. Uh, Would you mind introducing yourself, tell our audience what you do at St. Mary's and what your academic and professional interests are?
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, too. Yeah. My name's Dr. Julie Goderman. I am the Associate Director over in the Graduate Program of Nurse Anesthesiology. We have currently 35 students in our DNP, Doctorate of Nursing Practice, cohorts, and I've been here since 2019. Part of my role with that as well is I'm also our clinical director. So with that, I oversee, we have over 40 clinical sites. Interestingly, of those, over 10 of them are rural. So about a quarter of our sites are rural sites.
0: Very nice. Which
1: gives me kind of an interesting uh, connected background uh, about all the stuff currently going on.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, I know we originally kind of connected a while back and discussed maybe doing this topic because I know I had seen that you were on a panel at a convention discussing yeah. this. Can you just kind of discuss your background on the topic of rural health care and, you know, what interests you in that?
1: Yeah, so I should add, I am a certified registered nurse anesthetist, right, which right. is an advanced practice registered nurse. So I've been practicing since 2009, and some of my big passions throughout my career have always been kind of those grassroots legislative efforts, all the lobbying and trying to make sure that the policies we have in place really best match the needs we have in our communities for healthcare. So since 2009, I have been in a position that's known as the Federal Political Director, which is a position that's uh, organized by our national organization, the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. And then it's kind of down on the state level. So our Minnesota Association of Nurse Anesthetists is what actually appointed me to that position. So I work with our state in all of our CRNAs in the state. We have over 1,600 of them. To bring our kind of healthcare initiatives out to Washington, DC. Wow. So, with that, it's given me a lot of background in our legislative policies. Even in Minnesota, we had our APIN bill that went through in 2014, which changed a lot of the ways that we were able to practice. And that's part of what gives me my rural healthcare background, I think, is that I've really followed a lot of the policy over the years.
0: Right. Well, that's wonderful. Well, let's dive into it. So a few weeks ago, you know, I was reading in the Star Tribune, and there was a story that Essentia Health had announced it would no longer schedule uh, child deliveries at its Foston, Minnesota, hospital. In that article, you know, it also mentioned that Foston was not the first of, you know, Essentia hospitals to do this. It mentioned another number of rural northeast Minnesota towns. That also followed the same direction. But the thing that you know it mentioned in this story is that it's now forcing people who live in the community to drive an hour south to the closest hospital uh, with an obstetrical unit. So stories like that seem to be more common and to the average person, it seems like you know rural healthcare is in crisis. As someone who follows trends in rural healthcare, what sort of state would you say it's in?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, simply put, I would say crisis.
0: All right. <laughs> um,
1: you know, in rural healthcare, it's interesting. I think the OB story is grab everybody's attention because everybody's going to have a great deal of empathy for a baby that might be struggling or at risk, that mom in labor, we can all kind of relate to that situation and how unsettling that would be. But rural healthcare too has so many other services that often get overlooked. You know, think of pain management. You know, that hour added to the car drive you know, if you're somebody that has really bad back pain, sitting in a car and driving is usually one of the worst scenarios to be stuck in. So there's so many things beyond OB that really looking at our rural healthcare, I think it's often an overlooked, important service that we have. Minnesota is really unique. And I think the reason that we make a lot of the headlines in this. Is that we are a very rural state, you right. know, more than a lot of other states, and obviously not the most when you look at the makeup of the United States. But we do have a high percentage. Interestingly, certified registered nurse anesthetists actually provide the anesthesia services independently at about eighty percent of our rural healthcare facilities. Okay. So we are a big part of the the solutions uh, right. when we look at trying to save these places. But I think a lot of this stems, you know, COVID was really kind of the tipping point for a lot of these places. Right. You know, we look at, and then with COVID, when it first hit, I think in 2020, there were 19 rural hospitals that closed. But then in 2021 and 2022, I think it was a total of 10, which makes it sound like we made some great, you know, directional improvement. But in reality, we had all these temporary measures in place because of the pandemic. There was a lot more assistive funding, a lot of things, especially for our critical access hospitals, because, the metro area hospitals were completely overrun. you know. So so we had a lot of shifts and we had a lot of supports, but the problem is is that now that has gone away. And when we look at really the trends ahead of COVID, this is something that's it's making everybody's radar because now we're seeing so many of these places closing, or at least it feels like it. But since 2005, over 170 rural hospitals have closed, which is pretty phenomenal. That's about a third of the rural hospitals we had. So when you look at it like that, and we figured we've been averaging over 10 a year, For almost two decades, this is not a COVID crisis, but COVID really brought it all out because now we were seeing, and everybody was, I think, healthcare aware, right? Everybody was talking hospitals in 2020 and healthcare providers, and what does it look like for them? Because everybody was thinking this could actually be me. So I think it's good that it's becoming the conversation, but Mm -hmm. like a lot of things, I think hindsight is always much more forthcoming once we can piece it together, but this conversation really should have probably been happening in like 2010 or 2011 with the Affordable Health Care Act.
0: Definitely. You know, uh, recently, you know, a large part of the Infrastructure Reduction Act that was just passed by the Biden-Harris administration included a large part of like rural health care, be it lowering health care costs, infrastructure. So would you say those conversations are being had and it, it has grabbed attention or is there still more we can do?
1: I think some of those things are helpful, but I think there's a big gap that a lot of those conversations are still missing. And I think part of that is when we look at our rural hospitals in particular, you know, they're operating on small budgets. Mm-hmm. So any of these little swings, a loss of funding for this, you know, the COVID funding going away, really impact them quickly. The other challenge that rural hospitals have is that typically they are in more of our kind of underserved communities. So these are where we have higher populations of unemployment, low income, people on Medicare and Medicaid. And the problem with that is when you look at Medicare and Medicaid, they're all covered. They all have healthcare now, right? Which is great in theory, but when you put it on a spreadsheet and do your budget, if more of your payments are coming from Medicare and Medicaid and the Medicare payments aren't actually covering the cost of taking care of that patient, we're putting all the strain back on the rural hospital. Over 450 right now are operating at the same levels of the ones that closed last year.
0: That is wild.
1: Which is crazy. Yeah. You know, they all basically are at risk of closing when you run those numbers.
0: For sure. Well, and so you kind of hit on some of this with the answer to that last question, but what are the major contributing factors that have caused rural communities to struggle to maintain access to to quality health care?
1: You know, um, one of the big ones, I think, obviously— economics. So when we look at OB in particular, there was just an article that came out not too long ago, but basically it was talking to different rural healthcare executives about the crisis having to do with, you know, why are we losing services, why are places closing? And when they talked about OB in particular, They really mentioned that to cover the costs of OB services, you need about 200 deliveries a year. And when we talk about OB services, I think a lot of people are like, well, if they only deliver so many, that's not really a lot they need. But you have to remember OB is 24-7. Right. So to have a a physician that's competent and comfortable doing a C-section— that goes back to even their training, their residency experiences. How many of them that went into family practice, which is where a lot of these rural hospitals, those are their providers, right? Right. How many of them did their obstetrical and also kind of had that as a subspecialty where they can cover that in that community and safely do those procedures? If you're going to have... OB services, you have to be able to do a C-section at any point, which means you need a whole OR team, not just the you know, nurse anesthetist, not just the OB surgeon, but you need you know the nurses and the scrub techs. And that's a big draw on a small community. In a lot of these communities, when you look at their numbers at these rural hospitals, you know, like Olivia and some of those, they were doing 20 deliveries a year. I mean, that makes it really hard when you look at that discrepancy 20 deliveries versus needing 200 to just cover the services, again, on those small rural hospital budgets is a huge discrepancy to try to pull money from somewhere else. So I think those executives, it's a terrible decision to have to make, but they're kind of looking at, well, it's either that or we close. Which again is where I go back to policy and I say, we need to look at how we can do better because OB is important. You know, if that was your wife or your daughter, Your mom, if you're an older sibling eventually, that was in labor with a high-risk pregnancy and now driving you know, almost two hours to go get help, especially think about an emergency. What if you're worried something's wrong? That's a really long drive or even waiting for, you have to think even if it's an ambulance, ambulance response times in smaller communities are longer as well. They don't always have the fully equipped ambulances or the NICU teams or pediatric teams like we have in the Twin Cities. So it's a very different care
0: environment. We'll be right back in a minute.
1: There's a place in the world that will never be the same because of you. At St. Mary's University of Minnesota, we'll prepare you for that place. You will launch a new career or grow your current career because of your St. Mary's education. One that is personal, practical, and provides purpose to drive your decisions as you move from making a living to making your best life. And throughout your journey, we will be there as you set out for a destination that will never be the same because of you. St. Mary's University of Minnesota. Because of you.
0: So, thinking about the story from Foston, you know, when a healthcare provider closes a hospital unit or an entire facility, what kind of effects does it have on community and its patients who... Are the community,
1: yeah, absolutely, and that's just it. The patients are, you know, if you look at healthcare as a business, which it's not by any means the best run business, right? But our patients are our customers, and I don't mean that just from like a satisfaction standpoint, but just from a service standpoint. You know, when we go into n- needing care, when we become a patient ourselves, we're highly vulnerable. So, you know, you want to have that trust that if you're going into your nearest hospital, you know, if you're driving and you're in crisis. When we all see that blue sign with the H on it, there's always that little bit of relief. You know, you're getting close and you're going to get help. Right. And so I think for these communities, the idea that when they hit crisis and their habit is to drive to their local hospital, how many of them are even going to know or remember, you know, again, these are patients that maybe didn't seek all their prenatal care. Maybe they couldn't get to their appointments. They had jobs that didn't give them time off or they were afraid to ask, or maybe their housing situation is not stable. And so scheduling and keeping track of and getting to OB appointments doesn't happen to the same consistency that it does in populations where we see a higher socioeconomic status or in areas where they just have greater access to care. So when you think about those things, you know, that idea that we're not providing the best services we can to patients, regardless of where they live, is really unsettling. Especially this day and age, when the hospitals are there, they're built. And usually you think that the tangible costs are, you know, getting the brick and mortar up and running. But really, it's the ongoing running costs that are driving us down.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's kind of on the flip side of that, you know, when there's closures to units, facilities, how does that impact healthcare providers, be it doctors, nurses, techs, you know? Our our healthcare professionals.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, speaking specifically to, you know, the nurse anesthetists in these communities, I think, you know, for a lot of these uh, professionals, when they they go to nurse anesthesia school, usually it is with the goal of returning to their home community or community they're connected to. And that's why they end up in these rural towns. Right. And so— Another big piece of that is these are usually people that they love doing everything that they've been educated to do for their patients, providing the absolute best service they can. And from a job satisfaction standpoint, being able to do all of the different facets of anesthesia is a big part of that. So to lose an OB department, you know, for them, they have to think about, is that where they still want to be? Do they want to give up that skill set and just even the, the different emotions and feelings that comes with? Being able to do those types of services. And I think that's the first place that my heart goes. You know, we've had two clinical sites in this last year lose their OB services. River Falls wow. and New Prague just actually emailed this week that they're losing theirs um, in just a couple of weeks. Wow. Which is part of the Mayo system. You yeah. know, these aren't small systems, these are big systems that are all impacted. And so it is definitely a current crisis. And I can say, you know, from the CRNAs I hear from that have gone through this, It is a sad feeling because you're so proud of your community and the services you can offer all of the patients and the people that live there. I mean, these are people that you see in the grocery store and they know you by name because they know you from the church group that you go to on Wednesdays, you know, and then here they roll into your ER and they have an obstetrical emergency and you don't have anybody that can do a C-section and help them. Like just imagine, because these people, it doesn't mean they won't show up at the hospital. Yeah. You know, again, in crisis... Are they going to think, you know, how many people are still going to roll into these ERs and then be waiting on transport? And transport's mm-hmm. a whole nother cost to these rural hospitals. You know, ambulance services are expensive. And generally right now, all the funding that's part of our current legislation doesn't cover the full cost of running those ambulances, especially considering rural communities. It's longer drives. Yeah. You know, if you think of an ambulance like a really fancy Uber or taxi, <laughs> you know, it costs a lot more to take them, Four hours than it would 10 minutes, right? And again, if they're a Medicare or Medicaid patient, that's not really paying the ambulance bill. It's not paying the gas. right? You know, so that's a big thing. There is a current legislation kind of piece right now out in Washington. It's called Save Our Rural Hospitals Act. And it has a lot of different things in it, not just for anesthesia, but... It does cover some of those pass-through ambulance funding shortages. It helps with other subsidiaries and pass-through things to help with rural hospitals in particular that don't have the volume to kind of buffer some of the other losses.
0: Okay. So... I saw this story in the Min Post and I thought that this was interesting. You know, according to the Minnesota Department of Health, there's a shortage of medical providers in rural parts of Minnesota, as we've discussed. It pointed out specifically primary care and mental health providers, but, you know, again, kind of across the board shortage. To combat this, Centricare, you know, the healthcare provider out of St. Cloud, is partnering with the University of Minnesota to launch a new medical school in St. Cloud. And I just thought that that was really interesting, uh, you know, as a way to combat this issue. Uh, But, you know, that being said, as a university, St. Mary's, you know, we have a BS in nursing program. We have a 3-plus-2 physician's assistant program. And we have the DMP in nurse anesthesia. Uh, So what kind of things can St. Mary's be doing or thinking about to help combat this crisis in rural health care? Is there anything you're doing in your program specifically, you know, discussing these issues?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, So I work very closely with a fabulous colleague, Dr. Leah Gordon, and her and I in our nurse anesthesia program really are mindful of our community needs and our workforce. And so one of the things we do is that when we are making selections, we have been so fortunate to have so many wonderful qualified applicants, but we do try to be mindful that we don't take all people from the Twin Cities. We have to be very mindful that we're taking people from these communities that are in need and need these providers, you know, and have a harder time recruiting people. You know, typically somebody's more likely to stay in these communities if it's basically back home for them versus taking a two-year, you know, maybe incentivized job offer to help out temporarily. And so we're really mindful. And I think that that does make a big difference, especially, again, because a lot of these places are clinical sites. And on the flip, we rely on them to help educate our, (laughs) our future graduates. The other thing we've done is that traditionally when we were a master's program, We just graduated our last master's cohort in 2023, as we've transitioned to offer a doctorate as the terminal degree. So our first doctorate class graduates this coming August. So yeah, we officially have all three cohorts all going at the same time now, which is really exciting. And so we increased our cohort. Uh, We used to take 32 students when it was a master's program. And now the last two years, we've actually admitted 35 students to our doctorate, which is a big lift. You know, it's easy to say it's only three, but when you think about that could be three rural hospitals now having a provider, it's a huge shift. And the training and education that goes into nurse anesthesia is pretty intense, (laughs) you know, and they're expected to have over 2000 hours in clinical at the bedside. So when you run the math that we will have 110, you know, nurse anesthesia students in clinical at the same time, that's a lot of hours Um, over those years to get them in different hospitals. And that's why we do work with over 40 hospitals. Yeah.
0: Well, that's awesome. Before we sign off, if we have any listeners who are maybe concerned about what they're hearing, what are the sort of things that they might be able to do to take action to, you know, again, just kind of help combat this crisis that rural healthcare is facing?
1: Well, um, I would say a couple of quick things. If you're at all interested and curious about some of the stuff that I kind of hinted at, if you have a few moments, I would get on Google and just look up. There's two pieces of legislation that if you could write your legislators and give some comments, it would be great. One is that Save Our Rural Hospitals Act. That is critical right now for our rural hospitals to get the funding they need to hopefully not close. So if you have any family members in these small towns that you're thinking about, that's particularly valuable. And the other act that has been in process for a couple of years is called the I Can Act Act. Uh, which is a lot easier to remember and say. And that one has uh, a much more diverse kind of things that it helps with and covers. And it really covers uh, stuff even for other nurse practitioners, different things that kind of got left out of the Affordable Care Act, you know, being able to certify them for hospice and recertify them. Or if a patient is diabetic and needs the special footwear, right now nurse practitioners can't sign off on that or prescribe it. And so those patients, if you think of these rural communities, have to actually switch providers. They have to see a doctor, which isn't always available in these communities. Sometimes, you know, they would have to then drive that hour and they have to actually transfer care to that doctor for the doctor to write that prescription. So the way it is right now, if you have a family member that's diabetic and they do have, you know, concerns with their feet, which is very common, they would have to literally find a doctor and who knows how long the wait is. A lot of these doctors aren't taking new patients. You know, things are very crammed right now in healthcare. So establish care, get it ordered, and then they wouldn't technically be able to see their nurse practitioner. They'd have to like re-switch care back to that, which is crazy. So it has a lot of really great fixes that are really important across a lot of different specialties, including nurse anesthesia.
0: Well, Julie, I think this has been a wonderful episode and I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: St. Mary's Currents is a production of the St. Mary's University of Minnesota Office of Marketing and Communication. It is produced by Ben Rogers and Ashley Beeson. It is recorded, edited, and engineered by Jeffrey DeMarsh. Our theme music is by Will Cromer. I'm Ben Rogers. We'll see you next time for St. Mary's Currents. At St. Mary's University of Minnesota, our student success is at the heart of all we do. If you're ready to grow, to get an education that's future ready, and to go beyond making a living to making a life, St. Mary's is ready for you. Just like Emmy Johnson, Vice President and Chief Security Officer at Alina Health.
1: I made the decision to go to St. Mary's for a plethora of reasons. One, I wanted to be able to see myself in the community as being a student. And the idea of going to a large university where thousands and thousands and thousands of people went to campus was a bit overwhelming to me. And so when I made the decision to go to St. Mary's, I wanted to be able to step in and be a part of the community. And the faculty, my fellow students welcomed me, and I felt a sense of belonging right away, right as I began my undergraduate degree. The world will
0: change for the better because of you. To learn more about St. Mary's University of Minnesota
1: and start your journey, learn more at smumn.edu.